0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when God, I, mean, I was thinking that uh, this is the third location that we celebrated, Holy Week at St. Paul's, God I willing, and mean, next year will be our fourth and final hope. I wish you all a very blessed, great Friday. I Maybe mean, this is such a beautiful week, and all of us, I think we feel regenerated and... Uh, renewed in our spiritual life. Every time we come to Holy week and we focus on the passion of Christ. In the Old Testament, it was clearly revealed that there was a great gulf, a great chasm between God and man. And sometimes God allowed a glimpse of his glory, of his power, of his uh, honor to be seen by man or to be experienced by man. And it was a very dreadful experience. One of the very powerful expressions of this uh, experience of man who comes into contact with the glory of God is Isaiah. Isaiah has a vision in which he sees the Lord enthroned, surrounded by the seraphim. And they are singing in a beautiful voice, holy, holy, holy. And his reaction when he sees the glory of God is, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You can also think of, even in the New Testament, St. Peter, the Apostle, and in one of those early encounters that he has with the Lord Jesus Christ, the miracle of the great catch of fish, Peter also has a kind of experience of God's manifestation of his power, of his glory, of his honor. And so at the command of Christ to go into the deep and cast out again, St. Peter experiences God calling his creation the fish to come into the nets in total obedience. And Peter, coming into contact with the divine person of Christ, Again he does what he falls down and he says depart from me for I am a sinful man O Lord." Again St. Peter and two other apostles are taken by the Lord to Mount Tabor where he is transfigured before these three apostles. The same three apostles that he will take with him Peter, James and John to Gethsemane. And there in order perhaps to prepare his Apostles especially in the representation of these three Apostles for the passion that will be very soon that they will encounter and be participants of he's transfigured and his divine brilliance was seen by them and again what was what is their experience they fall down on their faces and they say and they were greatly afraid, the scripture says. So, when we speak about the glory of God, the, the power of God, the honor of God, throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, all the way through to the Passion, somehow the, the glory of God is manifested as a sort of transcend, the transcendent trans, transcendence of God. He transcends... Everything that's created. He is so other than man. He is so completely beyond creation. There is this great gulf, this great chasm between God and man. And when man comes into contact with this glory, he cannot bear to witness it. He cannot bear to be in its presence. But then something changes in passion. Something changes in, in the passion of Christ. For Christ... Consistently begins to speak about the hour of his glory. And he speaks about the hour of his glory as being the hour of the cross, which is kind of a, a, a significant contradiction to, up until this point, what was understood to be the glory of God. The glory of God is what Isaiah saw, what, what the three apostles saw in Mount Tabor. That's the glory of God. And so the apostles are trying to decipher and understand what is he talking about when he speaks about the hour of the cross. But he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That, that the world will see the true glory of God. The glory that Isaiah saw, the glory that Peter saw, the three apostles saw. This is the hour. So if what the disciples in Mount Tabor and what Isaiah saw and Moses on the mountain, what they experienced was the total otherness of God, the total chasm between God and man, then on the cross, the glory of God is the reversal of this gap, of this chasm, of this goal. See, Paul calls the cross the power of God the hour of his glory and the power of God. And so what is, what is taking place on the cross today is not that God's glory is manifested in him being apart from us, other than us, far from us, but that he manifests that the true glory of his nature, of his being, is that he has become one of us. And even greater than that, if there can be something greater than that. It's not only that He became one of us, but He actually took what was ours, which is that which totally and only belongs to humans, which is sin and death. He is the, the life giver. He is the creator and He is the living one. He is life itself. So He not only takes our humanity, but He takes the worst of our humanity. And he takes sin and death and he makes it one with him. St. Paul says, he who knew no sin, but became sin. Thousands and thousands and thousands of pages have been written by fathers and commentators and scholars trying to understand what St. Paul, how, how do we understand that he who knew no sin became sin? As much as we try to understand it, it it remains this dark mystery. So, the cross then is the power of God, it is the glory of God, but not because God is other than us, not because God is beyond us, not that God is just enthroned and bathed in light and unapproachable. But His glory is revealed as assimilating into Himself everything that is wrong with man. He became one with my sin, He became one with my death, and I became one with His divine life. We say in the Theotokias, the beautiful prayers, during the kiach, especially we, we might be familiar with them, but we also say them in, this, in the regular tizbacha. He took from what is ours and gave us what is his. But in the context of kiach, right, we usually think of this in terms that he took our humanity and gave us his divine life. But I want us to look at it a little bit differently today. Look at the icon of Christ on the cross and say, he took what is mine. What is mine is the cross, that's me, who should be on the cross. That's me who deserves the punishment of death. That's me who is disfigured by sin. That's me who is represented by the ugliness of of the, the final days of Christ's life. And he took me off of that cross, he took me he took what is mine, what belongs to me, what I deserve, and what truly belongs to me because of my nature. And he put himself in, in, in my place. And the, the, the amazing thing about this week is that every kind of ugliness of humanity is, is, is open for us to see and to, and to fathom. And we see the ugliness of the Romans. The, the brutality, the violence, the the lust for power, the vengeance, the cruelty that that man that surrounds all of the, not only the passion but how they dealt with their subordinates and and ruled people. We see the ugliness of the religious figures, those who were supposed to be God's hierarchs, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Scribes and and we see in them the sin of pride and hypocrisy, malice and hatred and envy towards Christ and towards the followers. And we see even just the common people who represent sort of this fickleness and double-mindedness. Hosanna to the son of David, Crucify him. The same people you know, who follow him, not because he gave them a sign in which they should believe in him, but because their bellies were full. And we see the disciples, the chosen ones, the blessed twelve. And what do we see in them? Betrayal, denials, doubts, fears, disloyalty. I took all of these together, the Romans, the religious leaders, the people, The disciples. And what do I see? I see myself. I see myself. The truth is is that the church puts all of this ugliness before us to show us the ugliness of sin, to show us the ugliness of corruption, to show us the ugliness of what humanity has reached. That even those who were chosen by Christ to be his disciples and witnesses of his glory and witnesses of his miracles that even they should display what is worse than all of us. And what does Isaiah say? He says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. All of our righteousness are like filthy rags. And St. Paul, one of these Pharisees, who encountered the living Christ, how does he understand it? In Romans chapter 3, he says, What then? Are we better than they talking about Jews and Gentiles? No. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. I can't think of a stronger sort of sentence against humanity. There is none. Not the the cruel soldier or the religious Pharisee or even either the apostle. And so the crucifixion puts an end to categories. Because there's only one category The cross points to human sin, of which all of us are under. And so the Passion reveals God's response to man's wickedness. Again, St. Paul says in Galatians Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on the tree. And as we said before, He made, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for St. Paul, it's very clear. Christ voluntarily, deliberately puts himself in accursedness. He makes himself a and to be a curse needs to be godless. It means somebody who is beyond godliness. That's what Christ identified himself with, and the response that God shows in the face of sin is what love mercy, and forgiveness. Love, mercy, and forgiveness. So the cross doesn't just show the ugliness of sin. It doesn't show just the the evil that we see in the Romans and the Pharisees and the people and the disciples. But more importantly, it shows how does God respond to that ugliness? How does God respond to that misery, to that wretchedness? What is His answer to it? And His answer to it is love. His answer to it is mercy. His answer to it is forgiveness. It means that by the cross, God has decreed that sin doesn't have the final word. There is a word that comes after sin. There is a response to sin that is greater than sin. And that response is life, salvation, redemption, love, mercy. So if God responds to sin in such a way, then it means the response is greater, has overcome the initial evil. And there's a verse that, for some reason this week was was fresh for me. I'm sure I've read it before, but it, it seemed to be a verse that I couldn't put aside this week when I was meditating on the Passion. And it's in St. Paul's epistle to Timothy, the second epistle to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 13. he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What does that mean? First of all, the first part, if we are faithless. Here St. Paul is not talking about faith in the sense of belief. He's not saying those of us who don't have faith in Christ. No, he's saying those who are faithless like a a faithless husband or a faithless wife. Somebody who is a betrayer, a denier. Somebody who has fallen short constantly. And so he says, if we are faithless, But he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny who he is. So the Passion reveals to us that God has incorporated all of our unfaithfulness. Not just in the past, not just in the present, but all of our unfaithfulness also in the future. And it's very clear that the cross decrees that. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He remains faithful to what He decreed on the cross. He remains faithful to His response to sin, which is love and mercy and forgiveness. He is unchangeable in that. And I kept thinking to myself, but something inside of me as as a man cries out for, for, for a form of justice in which there is a point in which he does deny me forgiveness, in which he does deny me unconditional love, in which he does deny me mercy. Because there must be a point in which I don't deserve it. There must be a point that in my unfaithfulness to God, he can't keep responding with the same love and with the same mercy and with the same forgiveness. Inside of me, that kind of justice cries out. Because I know that that's the only way that I can probably deal with another person. In the Gospel of St. John, St. John says that when Jesus knew that His hour had come, again, the hour of the cross, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to be the end. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to be the end. And I I kept asking myself, what does it mean to the end? To the end of his life? To the end of 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 when when the gospel says it is finished, when he read his last? Okay, but that's not what it means. It means he loved us to the end of our wickedness, to the further, furthermost part of our unfaithfulness. To as far as we can go to hurt him, to sin against him, to betray him, to deny him, he loved us to be in And St. Paul says, indeed let God be true, but every man a liar. And so when I am asking for this justice in which somehow the mercy and the forgiveness of God must be exhausted by my iniquities, St. Paul says to me, you are a liar to me, but let God be true. If we are faithless, he remains Faithful. And and this is, again, the decree of the cross, is that God does not give forgiveness. He is forgiveness. God does not dispense mercy. He is mercy. He doesn't show us love. He is love. God, as St. Paul says, he cannot deny himself. I wish we can say this verse together. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let's, let's just, I want us to say it together. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Again, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He, remains faithful. he cannot deny himself. Indeed, let every man be a liar, but let God be true. This tension, this tension between my misery, my my sins, my constant falling short of loving God the way He deserves to be loved, on the one hand, and this faithfulness of God on the other hand, to the end, is a great tension in each one of us. Because again, it's not the system of justice that we accept in our human nature. And as one of my favorite spiritual fathers, uh, Father Zachariah Zachary, he said, Look, there is an abyss of sin that cries out to the abyss of misery. Right? We are in this abyss of sin, this chasm, this, this black hole of sin. And yet there is just as great or even much greater abyss of God's mercy. And he says, we live with this abyss of, of sin crying out to the abyss of mercy. And I saw this very beautifully this week in the Apostles. So actually, I want us to go back for the rest of our, our meditation together to some of the events that we read about last night, which were the Eva Friday. First of all, at the Last Supper, Jesus said to the disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So I want us to focus on the disciples, but especially Peter. So Christ is about to go to his own destruction. He's about to enter the most painful and shameful experience of this human, human existence. And he, he tells the disciples very clearly, you will all be made to stumble because of me this night. For the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. But, but then what does he say? He says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. What did think of? I was reading this, and I was thinking to myself: He just accused them of betrayal, but how does he end his accusation or his prophecy? But I will, when I'm raised, I will go before you to Gather We will be reunited in Galilee. So you see already, Christ, when he speaks to the disciples, we're going to go through this evening very briefly together, right? Starting with the this event in the Last Supper, Christ is saying, you will betray me. You will, be, you will stumble because of me. But don't worry. I'm already thinking about when we're gonna be together in Galilee. I'm already thinking about all the beautiful things we're gonna do together. The, the abyss of sin, betrayal, is already met with the abyss of mercy and love. Christ is already speaking to them of their restoration. He's already speaking to them of of I have already forgiven you. He's worrying about them. He is about to go to his death, his crucifixion, his torture, and he's worrying about his disciples. He's saying, don't worry. After all this, you will see that I will go before you and meet you in Galilee. Jesus starts the evening with them, promising them that He will never turn His back on them. No matter how much they disappoint Him, and again, put ourselves, we, this is our journey, not just the disciples. No matter how much they disappoint Him, no matter how much they deny Him, no matter how much they succumb to fear, He promises them restoration and forgiveness and mercy and love. So Peter says what, he says, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Even if all of these other disciples, even if they are made to stumble, but I love you too much. Put yourself in Peter's place. Lord, I love you too much to do A, B, and C. Yeah, maybe I did some, but but I love you too much to do that. Peter doesn't know himself yet. Peter, I I really love Peter. He's an emotional person. He's a person of the heart. But he doesn't know himself very well. And in that sense, Peter is a very good representative of many of us. So, sort of emotionally... And he's speaking sincerely. Peter loves Christ so much. Peter has come to leave his family, to leave his his fishing business, to leave everything and follow Christ. He has seen enough. He has witnessed enough. He has participated in enough, enough that he can't imagine ever betraying or denying Christ. And then look what Jesus says to him. Assuredly, I say to you, that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So what does Peter do? Again, he sets himself apart from his companions and Christ sort of raises up the ante. He says, not only will you be made to stumble, you will deny me three times. As a matter of fact, you who set yourself apart from your brethren, you will do what they will not do. They will merely scatter, but you will purposefully deny me three times when you have the opportunity to confess me. So Peter, who began by saying, even if everybody else fails you, Lord, I will never fail you. He says, you will fail me even worse than that. What a lethal mistake, Peter. What a lethal mistake I made. Again, St. Paul's words ring very loudly. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not you, Peter, either. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. In St. Luke's account of, of the same incident, Jesus says, Simon, Simon... Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Sounds awfully familiar to, you know, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But don't worry. I will meet you and go before you in Galilee. And here, Christ says to St. Peter, he says, look, Satan has asked for you to demolish you, to, to destroy you. But I have prayed for you. And when you recover, And you will recover. Strengthen your brethren. Again, the abyss of of, of weakness and sin means the abyss of mercy. If we are faithless, but he remains faithful, he cannot deny himself. As if Jesus was saying to to St. Peter, But I knew your weakness before choosing you as a disciple. And I would not come this far with you if I intended to ever abandon you, Peter. My father's fidelity and love and not your weakness will have the last word in this drama that's unfolding. Now put yourself in that, instead of Peter, but I knew your weakness before I created you, before you were born. And I would not have brought you this far if I ever intended to abandon you. My Father's love and not your weakness will have the last word. This is the last word. The cross of the last word. This and the the empty tomb on Sunday. Again, how does St. Paul go from this very powerful description of the fallen man to redemption in the same chapter he says for there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god they are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption which is in christ jesus from god put forward it is as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith so there there is justice which is destroyed Human justice, which is destroyed. The justice that says there must be a limit to love, unconditional love, to mercy, to forgiveness. St. Paul says, There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are justified by His grace as a gift. And this gift is made possible by the blood that we see dripping from the cross to be received by you and me in faith. Then Jesus came with them to a place that's called Gethsemane, St. Matthew tells us, and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So now the Lord becomes even more vulnerable. Not only is he with them in, in the upper room, giving them a sense of how things are going to unfold in the evening but now he comes to them as one in me and he says look i'm in distress i'm in anguish i am sorrowful unto death i'm crying out father if it be possible let this cup pass from me i need some companionship and he takes the three apostles who should have been strong because they saw him in Mount Tabor, right they saw him transfigured on the mountain so perhaps he thought that he would take these three to witness maybe what the others couldn't handle. Perhaps the, the other disciples wouldn't, wouldn't be able to, to even accept to see Christ in such weakness. So he takes the ones who saw him in glory and he says to them, stay with me, awake. Let's pray together. I'm trying to imagine the Lord telling me, come pray with me. I need, I need your prayers. I need your strength, your companionship. Your, I need you to stay awake with me tonight. And three times, the disciples are asleep. And he comes to them the first time, are you still asleep to get up? Second time, the same thing, the third time. Indeed, they, like us, become what the scripture says, useless servants. Useless servants, that's what we are. But again, if we are faithless, but he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So Jesus says to them, watch and pray. Finally, he says to them, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, Jesus went from, I need you, help me, Okay, you can't help me, let me think about you. Right, so he says to them, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Again, Christ shifts from himself to the care of his disciples. And then he says, behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. Of course, he's speaking about Judas. And very beautifully, when Judas comes and kisses him, Jesus says to him, Friend, why are you here? And the the translation for the word friend here is not like uh, a friend from work. An acquaintance. The word means my companion or my comrade. My partner. That kind of friendship. So he says to his betrayer, he says, my companion, my comrade, my partner, why have you come here? So Christ, even in the face of his betrayer, is thinking about Judas. He's still loving Judas. He's still forgiving Judas. He's still offering Judas to to be like the others who have failed him, no different. And he treats him with no, with, with no deference. He says, you are my friend just like they are my friends. Even though he plotted in this way, and they scattered in this way, and he denied me in this way. If we are faithless, what? He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. But then Peter followed it from a distance. The, the Gospel of St. Matthew tells us. And he sat in the high priest's courtyard. And uh, St. Matthew says, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So Peter is conflicted. Peter loves Christ, but he has fear. He's afraid. So he tries to stay close enough that he can keep an eye on, on, on his friend, on his master, but not so close because of his fear that he would be identified with him. This tugging of Peter's heart, I think is the tugging that we all feel. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to give you my life. I want to obey you. But there's this fear that wants to cling to myself and to my protection and to my self-preservation. How do I resolve this fear? And in one of the accusations, I will go through all of them, but in one of the accusations, it's sort of an ironic, that, that is worthy of our meditation. Someone says to him, surely you are one of them or your speech betrays you. Think about that. Now, of course, this person is identifying Peter as a Galilean. This person is saying, your accent sounds like the accents of those who come from Galilee. So you're part of that group. But read it in a different way. Surely, you are one of them. Surely, your identification betrays you that you belong to Jesus. As much as you and I want to betray him, deny him, forsake him, disobey him, the finger is pointed back at us that says, surely you are one of his. Surely, you belong to him. Surely, you can't separate yourself from him. You cannot, you can't disassociate yourself from him. You belong to him. So I see in this in this accusation the most beautiful expression of who Peter is. You can't hide, even in your fear. You will go with him to get to meet him in Galilee. You will see him on the seashore after his resurrection. You will go to the ends of the earth and confess him. You belong to him. And each one of us, we belong to him. He can't forsake us, even if we try to deny him. He will keep after us, like Peter. He will say, Satan has asked for you, but I have prayed for you. Because if we are faithless, but he remains faithful, because he cannot deny himself. What a beautiful irony. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, before the rooster crows, he will deny me three times, so he went out and wept bitterly. Look at the, the beautiful sign that Christ sends to Peter to awaken his love. The crowing of the rooster. That's all it took. Peter, in the midst of his fear, in his denials, in his defense against those who are saying, surely you are one of them. No, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. All it took was the, row, the, the crowing of the rooster, for Peter to awaken his love and to offer that sincere repentance. How many times God will knock at our hearts, will knock at the door of our, conscious, our conscience and awaken us again to his love. And that's why the rooster is a reminder that Christ has already, he tells Peter, I have already told you this is gonna happen. And I told you it's going to happen so that you don't despair. So that you're not afraid to come back. I just want to end with a beautiful quote by a, a father, Marikakis, who uh, was uh, in his commentary on St. Matthew. He says, Peter showcases, and I think this sort of summarizes what we began with with the the sin that we see in this week, the soldiers and the Pharisees and the people and the disciples. He says, Peter showcases the very complex character of the human heart by displaying for all to ponder the whole range of the heart's capacities. Initial enthusiasm and positive response for a short while of loyalty, tenacity, and passion, then fearfulness, cowardice, and betrayal, and in the end, sorrowful repentance and regeneration. That's the cycle. initial enthusiasm, loyalty, maybe even courage, but then comes a time of cowardice, betrayal, denials. But then he awakens in us with the rooster crowing in our hearts, repentance and regeneration. And so, We talked about these two abysses: the abyss of sin, the abyss of weakness, the abyss of misery, and the abyss of mercy. And what the cross shows us today is that the abyss of mercy has swallowed the abyss of sin. Because if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. 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 Because he he cannot deny himself. And Hosea, he says, "I will betroth you. I will betroth you to me forever." I will betroth you to me in the righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Christ today is the bridegroom who has betrothed us, wedded us forever. And he he did that in righteousness and in his justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Finally, if we, what? Are faithless. He remains faithful. You cannot deny yourself and glory to God forever.